What do you get when you take somebody who identifies as gay, but also identifies as Christian? And not only that, but identifies with the historic Christian sexual ethic, which says that God's design for sexuality and marriage was always intended to be between one man and one woman. That's what we will explore in today's episode as we have a wonderful conversation about compassionate sexual orthodoxy with Peter Valk. Guys, I have to tell you, I was so blessed and impressed chatting with Peter. He balances the concepts of truth and love around this issue so well. He is absolutely committed to what the scripture teaches about sexuality. And yet, he is also compassionately open about the struggle of what it's like to live as a same-sex attracted person. And not only that, I think he speaks prophetically to the church in such a gentle, intelligent balanced way about the need for us to course correct some of the flaws of the past and look towards a future where people who struggle with same-sex attraction and even struggles beyond that can find healing, redemption, and forgiveness and unconditional love in the arms of Jesus and community in the arms of the church. This is going to be part one of a two-part series of episodes. Peter is going to do a great job setting up who he is, what he believes, what his experience has been, and what his heart is for the church. And he's going to answer some deep questions about some of the theological concerns and implications that could be raised around his viewpoint. And so... That's going to be part one. And then in part two, we're going to come back for another episode responding to pushback that Peter has gotten from people who are confused about who he is and what his ministry is. And I've just got to say in advance, you're not going to want to miss part two. Peter handles it like a champ with so much grace and love and wisdom. I'm excited you guys are here. Thanks for listening. And with that, let's get into part one of our conversation with Peter Valk. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Good Lion Podcast. I am your host, Aaron Salvato, and I'm here with my new friend, Peter Valk. Hello. Good to be here. It's good to have you, man. It's so good. I'm so excited about this episode. A little little nervous, mostly excited. I, I think this is going to be good. For those of you guys who don't know Peter, he is the founder and leader of a ministry called Equip, and he is one of the founders of the Nashville Family of Brothers. Two things that are super interesting that I'm sure he'll be able to tell you more about. But overall, Peter's life and ministry is dedicated towards helping Christians navigate the, the crazy, choppy, difficult waters of sexuality, same-sex attraction, all of that stuff. It's a part of his life story, and it's a part of what he's called to. And I'm, I'm very excited to have him share about those aspects today with us. So, Peter, welcome to the show. Yeah, I uh, thanks for the opportunity to chat about these topics. I forget that I talk about controversial topics and this controversial topic for a living, and so I'm really <laughs> comfortable with it. But I know that's not the case for 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 podcasts, hosts, and that's not the case for a lot of Christian leaders and a lot of parents. So I'm really grateful for the opportunity to hopefully help right. some leaders and parents out with navigating these topics with God's love and with God's wisdom. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that that's the thing, man. I mean, th this show is actually, I mean, our tagline is, you know, no easy answers. It's good lion. It's based on C.S. Lewis. The idea of God is he is good, but he's not safe. And so we're, mm. we're always trying to dive into those complex, controversial topics in a Christ-centered way. But even though we've been doing this for years, it, it still stresses me out to a point <laughs> because I, I find that a lot of podcast space is so flippant and so opinion-driven. Mm. And for me, it's like, I don't want people to get necessarily my opinion. I want to point them to truth, you know? Yeah. So so that, that's, that's where the cautiousness comes in. I, I think I found out about you through Brenna Blaine, who was on our episode, or it might've been Jeremy... Jeremy Jenkins, who interviewed you as well. He's a part of our podcast network, but you've been on my radar and then you actually reached out and were like, hey man, let's collaborate. And I was so blessed <laughs> that you did that. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. Both, both Brenda and Jeremy, you mentioned great people doing good work. Yes, absolutely. Peter, I, I think before we get into the meat of the episode, it'd be great for people to just hear a little bit about you and who are you? <laughs> why do you do what yeah. you do? Can you break down that for us?
Yeah, so I am a writer and speaker about discernment, vocational singleness, LGBT plus topics, according to historic sexual ethics. And I've been published in places like Christianity Today and, and Mere Orthodoxy and, and have spoken at over 85 churches and Christian universities and campus ministries. As you mentioned, I'm the founder and executive director of Equip, which is the premier consulting and training solution for churches aspiring to be places where LGBT plus people thrive according to historic sexual ethics. And we've trained over 21,000 Christian leaders. I'm a, a teacher and aspiring deacon in the Anglican church in North America about hmm. celibacy and sexuality. I am one of the founding brothers of the Nashville family of brothers, which is an ecumenically Christian monastery building lifelong family in Nashville <laughs> for men called to vocational awesome. singleness. And then I'm a, I'm a licensed professional counselor and I specialize in serving gay Christians hoping to steward their sexualities according to historic sexual ethics. And yeah, a lot of my jobs have to do with sexuality and finding belonging in the body of Christ. And, and this work, all this work matters to me because I'm a Christian and I am gay, I have persisting same-sex attractions, and I am committed to a historic sexual ethic. And when I say historic sexual ethic, here's at least what I mean. I mean a belief that God's best for every Christian is either what's called vocational singleness, which is a lifetime vocation of abstinence singleness for the sake of doing kingdom work with undivided attention, or Christian marriage which Christians have historically understood to be a lifetime vocation of opposite sex Christian marriage with an openness to raising children for the sake of the kingdom. So, so I believe that God's best for every Christian is either vocational singleness or Christian marriage, including myself. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's been a journey for me. I mean, I grew up in a Christian home. I knew I was a sinner who needed a savior. And then in middle school, when I realized that I was same-sex attracted when I realized it was gay. I, I knew what the scriptures taught about that. I knew what how my parents and, and my church understood the scriptures to teach about that. You know, for a while, I, I, I thought I'd done something wrong, and that was why I was same-sex attracted. For a lot longer, I thought that, well, maybe if I pray hard enough, or I go to the right therapists, or I, or I make deals with God, I can, I can mm. force him to change my sexual orientation. And after... 10 years and thousands of prayers and hundreds of hours of therapy and nine months out of pray the gay away ministry. Nothing changed about my wow. sexual orientation, but I continue to be convinced that of a historic sexual ethic, that that's that, that, a, that a God exists and that that God knows what's best for me better than I do. And the way we know how that God thinks about anything is we read the scriptures with the historic church and and to me the 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 arguments for the arguments that a historic sexual ethic is how God thinks about this are 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 a pretty pretty strong pretty convincing yeah. for me but figuring out then what to do with that you know okay how do how do I follow that in a way that's faithful mm. and in a way that brings fullness of life to me has been a whole other challenge and and that that's involved you know, starting to share my story with brothers and sisters in Christ that I'm doing life with, discovering that I was not alone in being a Christian and being gay and trying to follow God's teachings, but realizing that, that there's a lot of, of gay Christians committed to a historic sexual ethic out there and, and all of us have pretty similar experiences that, that we were afraid we'd be alone if we yeah. followed God's wisdom and we didn't have parents or pastors who knew how to help us. Yes. And so in many ways, those two things were, were, were the kind of the beginnings of, of two of the big projects I'm involved in right now. First was in 2014, I started Equip, that ministry whose mission is to equip parents and pastors to better minister to people like me, according to God's wisdom. And then in 2018, I helped start the Nashville Family of Brothers, which is a place where, where people like me, and by people like me in this context, I mean, not necessarily same-sex attracted, but any men who feel called to celibacy for Jesus yeah, yeah. can find family in the Nashville wow. family of brothers. So, and then there's been lots of, of, of bumps and, and turns and pit stops along the way, yeah. but that's, uh, that's my story in a, in a nutshell. Wow. It's beautiful, Peter. I, I'm just honestly so encouraged, man, by people like you, Christians who live a life of radical self-sacrifice. I mean, it, it, ultimately every Christian is called to a life of self-sacrifice, but I can recognize there, there is a sacrifice you're making that, you know, for me as a straight man, 
I, I don't face that same struggle. I have, I have options that I can, you know, choose within the, you know, umbrella of God's will. And, and so I just, man, I, I respect the heck out of guys like you and what you're doing. And just when I look at somebody who's like, I am committed to the way of Jesus and I care enough about the, the reality of sin and, and the reality that sin hurts people and it destroys lives mm-hmm. that I'm not going to do what's easy, but I'm going to do what Christ re- requires of me. That's, that's mm-hmm. beautiful, man. And it's inspirational. And so, you know, I, I, I look up to you in that way and I'm encouraged to hear your story. I've been encouraged to, you know, read some of your uh, story and listen, I've listened to a few podcast episodes. I might actually link in the show notes a few other podcast episodes that Peter was on that go into even greater detail about his testimony because I think it's really worth listening to. But uh, yeah, Peter, thank you so much for sharing that and, and for being who you are, man. I, I think it's an important thing to have guys like you on this show because this show represents we, we within a church movement called Calvary, a Calvary Global Network, CGN. We've got a lot of people listening within CGN and even some without that are young adult Christians trying to navigate the craziness of this postmodern post-Christian world. We've got young pastors, youth pastors, young adults, pastors, even some senior pastors who listen because they're, they're, they're wanting to understand these things at a deeper level. And I want to understand these things at a deeper Mm -hmm. level. So that's, I'm not hosting this episode as an expert. I'm kind of looking Mm -hmm. to you as an expert. And so I just want to dive deep into some of this stuff with you, if that's okay. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I appreciate the encouragement, but I, I, and I think something that might even be helpful for your listeners is is maybe for me to push back on the assumption that same sex attracted same sex attracted Christians are are supposed to have it have a more difficult life than mm. than you know opposite sex attracted Christians. Yeah, it may be true that experientially because of the unfaithfulness of the church, yeah, it yeah. is harder for me currently. But I don't mm. think that's what God intended because mm. I think if, mm. if 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 our takeaway is it is truly more unfair for gay people than straight people. Yet God chooses most of the time not to change people's sexual orientations. Hmm. We can talk some doublespeak around that. Hmm. But at the end of the day, it's hard not to conclude that that God would just be cruel. But I don't think that's how, I don't think that's true. So, you know, I, I think there's some ways that, that I bear some extra wounds and some extra burdens, particularly because of the years I spent in the closet hiding yeah. this part of my story that, that maybe wear me down a little bit. But but I don't think it has to be that way. I think we could be a church where as soon as kids notice the same sex attractions or gender incongruence are a part of their story, they share with parents and they share with pastors and they're, those people in their lives help them make sense of that. And they never they never accrue the the anxiety and the depression and the unhealthy coping mechanisms and the barriers to healthy intimacy that I kind of collected over yeah. those years. So I think that's avoidable, you know? Uh, so I think it right. doesn't have to be hard and harder in that way. I think mm. as well, you know, at least say for my story, while I'm not bisexual, I'm not generally attracted to women as much as I am attracted to men. I'm not generally physically or romantically attracted to women at all, that I was in some dating relationships in college where I was transparent with the women that, that I was going on dates with. Really, I, I was in a Christian fraternity that required me to take women on date events and then kind of accidentally <laughs> yeah, right. thought some, accidentally ended up getting into dating relationships with these women because I thought they were cool. And I was like, hey, you know my story, but what if we just went on some more dates and kept on hanging out? And, and, yeah. I, and I fell in love with a couple of them and grew some specific desires for a couple of them. So I actually know that the Christian marriage could work for me. Yes. Um, yeah. and, and I'm following, Beautiful. but I brought that question to God. God, are you calling me to Christian marriage? Or are you calling me to singleness for the Lord that I see in Matthew 19 or 1 Corinthians 7? And I felt clearly that the, the God was calling me to, to shut the door on Christian marriage and to follow in the footsteps of the kind of singleness that Jesus and Paul talk about in scriptures. So in that yeah, sense, yeah. I don't feel forced into celibacy. I think in many ways the same options were before me as is before any straight Christian. And I joyfully accepted Jesus's call. And I don't think a call to celibacy or to vocational singleness is supposed to be any harder than a call to faithful Christian marriage. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. think any of us need sex or romance to be whole people. And we know that there right. won't be sex or romance in, in the next life. And so they are temporary pleasures. What I see is that neither faithful monogamy nor faithful celibacy come naturally 
to the broken Christian. Hmm. Yeah. Both of them are unnatural to us in our broken Hmm. state. Both of them require a huge grace from Jesus to do either Hmm. well. And, mm-hmm. and, and I'll say at least, you know, I'm doing life with some, some married Christians in, in my church who are raising a bunch of kids. And I don't know if my life is harder than theirs. It's, it's different. Mm. It's a different pattern. The, the, the grass is not greener on the other side. The average color of my grass is the same color as the average color of their grass. Just the pattern of the grass is a little different on my mm. side versus their side. But so, so I'll say top line, if there's anything that's harder about my life, or about my peers who are gay and Christian and feel called to vocational singleness, called to celibacy. Mm. I think it's because our church has doesn't know what to do with people called to vocational singleness. Yeah, yeah not that's good. That the, not that it has to be inherently harder. And so, anyway, that's that's all to say. That was a long-winded answer, but but I, no, but I do think great. God's hopes for the church is that if we would be faithful around mm. how we teach and disciple about LGBT plus topics and how we teach and disciple about vocational singleness, regardless of sexual orientation. I think our churches could be places where LGBT plus people were thriving according to God's wisdom, just as much and just as easily as anyone else. That's good, man. I mean, that that's really encouraging. That's good pushback for, for me, mm-hmm. <laughs> like sure. to hear. Um, because, you know, I, I have leaned into that aspect of things being harder. I mean, I remember one time sure. I was speaking to a group of my my boys, my my straight male high school boys, you know, and they, they were it was at a youth group event and they were making fun of gay people. They were singing some song around the fire about how it's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve and just mm-hmm. kind of generic high school mockery. And sure. I. I just pulled them aside and I just felt led to try to speak to them in that moment. And I was like, guys, yeah. I just want you to try to understand a little bit of what somebody on the other side goes through. Like mm-hmm. imagine me as your youth pastor, if I were to say, Hey guys, I've been studying the scriptures and the scholars and the other pastors. And I've come to this conclusion that your attraction to women is unnatural and for sure. you to ever act on it or have sex or want to get married or have kids it's sure. actually impossible for you and you you can't do that how would you feel and they kind of like the light bulb mm-hmm. went on their head and they're like whoa and one one boy said very you know a, a very deep <laughs> real raw thing he was like if that was the case i would probably have a hard time following jesus and being a christian and i would be sure. really tempted to to just not be a Christian. Sure. And I think that was a wake up call for them just, just to recognize that there is this layer of difficulty that's different from what they experience. But I, I do like what you said, pushing us back to the reality of like, it doesn't have to be as hard as it is because sure. a, a lot of that hardness comes from the way the church over the years has mishandled this. And if we can forge a better future, for how to create an environment where people who struggle with this can feel welcomed, not mm-hmm. affirmed in, in any sin, but affirmed in, hey, you you are a person who's loved and valued mm-hmm. and and you are sexually broken just like I am a straight person, am sexually broken. And yeah. can we follow Jesus together? And can we can we encourage one another? You know? Yeah. And and so I, I love your heart, man, and what you're saying. It's yeah. really beautiful. Yeah, I think what gives and even for that that high school student who responded really honestly. Yeah. I think what empowers that response is a belief that that romance and sex are the most meaningful yeah. ways for humans to connect. Mm. And so if anyone was deprived of the opportunity to enjoy that with the people that they're most drawn to or enjoy that with anyone, that they are being deprived of, of an essential and a best human experience. Mm-hmm. And, and I think what I'd push, I, I, obviously sex and romance are beautiful gifts from God, particularly when used in the right context and when, and, and when, when, when aligned with his desires and his purposes. And I don't think the idea that that is the most beautiful or meaningful connection mm-hmm. is found in scripture. Mm-hmm. I think that's some, a lie sold by Disney Channel mm-hmm. and yeah. by Taylor Swift songs. <laughs> And by the Bachelor and the Bachelorette, I think if we read the scriptures, <laughs> we we see that 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 friendship, non romantic, non sexual friendship, is mm-hmm. is at the core of what it means for Jesus to relate to 
his fellow humans when he was on earth and we see and we hear a lot from from david about how much friendship meant to him and he was a man after god's own heart and how much he in some ways not that he valued his friends more than his spouse but that he mm. saw that love as something that that, that 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 rivaled not in a competitive way but in a way that was just as beautiful different but just as beautiful mm. so so if I don't assume that sex and romance are the best ways or the only ways to enjoy healthy connection with people, then a way we could reframe this is that I think gay Christians committed to God's wisdom are just as much invited by Jesus mm. to love in non-sexual, non-romantic, but meaningfully intimate ways, the people they admire. Mm. That Jesus has invited me to love men in ways that honor God's wisdom, but are not lesser. Yeah. But are actually just as, as meaningful, just as good. I mean, they are, they are the best ways that yeah. I can enjoy friendship with, with, with men that I admire for any number of reasons. So yeah. I, I don't feel like Jesus is telling me you're drawn to these people in your life, but you have to run away from them. Yeah. I think he's telling me, you're drawn to these people in your life. And, and maybe there's some, some aspects of those desires that aren't what I meant for you, but you can have meaningful relationship, meaningful friendship with those people. And hey, I wanna give you some advice of some healthiest, best ways to do that so that you can enjoy friendship with them for a lifetime in the most mm. life-giving ways. It's beautiful, man. Yeah, I mean, I, I myself, I know, have been guilty of elevating marriage to this ultimate place because I was a kid who grew up and had a hard time making friends. And then when I met my mm -hmm. wife, she became my best friend. And so for a while, I did elevate marriage into a, a place that might not have been biblical in the sense of I devalued the, the, the actual, you know, fraternal friendships with other people. You know, I, I think that there is such a need for that. There's always been a need for that, but I think there's a, a resurgence in the church of recognizing like, hey, single people are not junior Christians in training waiting for the magical day when they get married and can truly be a part of the kingdom of God. It's like, no, they're, they're, they are just as much a part of the kingdom. And actually, Paul goes on to say that they are going to be more effective because they're not held back by the cares of this world. They're, they're going to be more unrestrained to do kingdom work. The, the next place I'd want to go from here is I want to dive into some theology stuff with you around yeah, this, sure. and just some, some of your personal theology around this stuff. Right now, there's a big conversation that's happening kind of in the Christian commentary, theology world, you know, Twitter spaces, podcasts. I've been just paying attention to it because it's a part of my job to pay attention to it. And I, everyone right now seems to be debating the question of, is same-sex attraction sinful? The way that I've always framed it in my mind is to experience a temptation does not mean that you yourself are actually sinning. To act sure. on the temptation in any way is where the sin comes into play. Mm -hmm. But have you been paying attention to that conversation? Do you have any thoughts on that conversation? Yeah. So, and, and usually where people diverge or where people come to different conclusions on that question is both their use of the word sinful hmm. and then whether or not they have a kind of a, a Calvinist theology of concupiscence. So yes. we're getting a bit yeah. into the weeds here, but I'll start with the simpler of the two, and that's the word, the use of the word sinful. So there's two ways to define the word sinful. Sometimes we use it to describe something that is related to something that is broken, but mm. we're not saying that the thing is actual sin, right? So mm. if I'm using this in the context of same-sex attractions, I would say same-sex attractions are sinful, meaning same-sex attractions are related to a brokenness, but experiencing same-sex attractions are not themselves actual sin until you say yes to them in thought, word, or deed. Okay. Yeah. But another yeah. way people use the word sinful is to say that merely experiencing that thing is a sin. So they may say same-sex attractions are sinful, meaning merely experiencing same-sex attractions are actual sin. 
So some of this is the trickiness of our use of the word sinful and maybe sloppiness of our use of the word sinful, which is one of the reasons why I just don't use the word sinful. Hmm. I will say whether it is a sin or it is not a sin. And I think that's yeah. a little bit more precise language. So that's personal preference. I, I kind of yeah. just try to avoid the word sinful. In the same way, I think the word desire is kind of confusing. I avoid the word desire. I just use the words temptation versus lust because I think those are a little bit more obvious what they mean. Okay, so then there's the question of, well, then are merely experiencing same-sex attractions a sin? Yeah. If we're asking that question more precisely. And yeah, I think historically the church would say that that being tempted is not an actual sin. And I think uh, the that meaningful consensus of global Christians today and the denominations that they are a part of uh, believe that merely being tempted is not actual sin. But there are some theological traditions that don't see as much of a distinction between being tempted and kind of being vulnerable to temptation because of our brokenness mm. versus the moment... A couple of moments later where we where we choose to participate in that temptation and have have therefore sinned and they would see the line between those two things is a lot more blurry or even they're not being a line there, but instead a gradient and and, and not seeing kind of the, the clear distinction of kind of our agency being that meaningful. And so they would say there's not really a difference between being tempted and between acting on a temptation, merely being broken, merely experiencing same-sex attraction is mm. a sin. So that's not what I personally believe, but but Equip, the organization I work for, we have worked with churches who that is their that, their perspective. And, and I think our, our key kind of recommendation to those, to spaces that, that believe in kind of a, a Calvinist view of concupiscence, that's what would lead to that perspective on the merely being tempted with something is a sin. That's a new word for me. <laughs> Oh, concupiscence? Yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> we're really getting in the weeds there. Um, is, is that a primary position that like most reform people would hold, you think? Or is it sort of a niche thing? Historically, it is the... Also, the word reformed is tricky because reform could also refer to Lutheran. Right. It could refer to Anglican. It could refer to of the Reformation. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I thinking, personally don't... I'm thinking more in the sense of Calvinism, which I'm, okay, I'm not a yes. Calvinist, but I have many friends that are. And I love them and serve with them, even though there's some differences there. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it's pretty his standard kind of historic Calvinist theology. So, but, but I think there's a way to apply that consistently to everyone in your church and everyone's temptation in your church that, 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 that would avoid kind of targeting of, of people who experience same sex attraction. So, Mm. yeah, I mean, I don't know if this is overtly simplistic, but in my mind, I do go to the verses that talk about Jesus being tempted in every way. Mm And mm-hmm. but without sin. And yeah. there there does seem to be some biblical distinction. The temptations themselves are sinful in the sense of they're a product of the fall. They're a product right. of a sinful, yeah. broken world. But it doesn't necessarily translate to you are therefore in sin if you experience these things. And I think that's yeah. freeing for a lot of young people to hear, whether they're straight or gay, because a lot of like young people, as, as a youth pastor, I know a lot of young people, when they're going through the process of puberty, they're hit with all of these sexual temptations. And sure. I think it can be very freeing for them to understand like, hey, it's not about experiencing them. It's what do you do with them? And how do you yeah. set up safeguards to help yourself deal with them in the future? I want to jump into something that you said that I, I was really impressed with. Is it cool if I quote you? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> this, is a, this is a post that you wrote on social media recently. You said, I recently went on the Things You Don't Hear in Church podcast to talk about faith and sexuality. One of the questions that was explored was whether God intends for people to experience same-sex attraction. Even queer secular scientists recognize that no one is born gay. We all develop our sexual orientation from a mix of genetics and relational upbringing But even if we were born gay, that doesn't tell us about God's intentions. And then you went on to say, none of us are how God intended. All of us were corrupted at a genetic level, formed imperfectly in our mother's womb, born into a fallen world that injured us countless times before we developed true agency. And then I was skipping ahead, but you said this here. 
As I've explored at length in Equip's responding to convincing arguments for revisionist sexual ethics, Romans 1 teaches us that same sexual desires are unnatural, broken, and contrary to God's first intentions. Okay, I'll put the link to the rest of the post in the show notes for any of you guys who want to read it, but I just want to stop there. Peter, that's a, that's a heavy thing to teach, and it's it's something I agree with, but I just want to recognize it's, it's heavy, and I think that... <laughs> I think that sometimes I've seen people hold this truth in an imbalanced way where when it Mm. comes to homosexuality, they only focus on the unnatural aspect. And so it's Mm. just focus on it's not natural. It's not natural. And like I'd argue that even though it's true that heterosexual relationships are God's original design. Yes, I would say for straight married men, lust towards a woman who's not your wife is also unnatural because that's against God's design for you of a one man, one woman relationship. I don't know if you'd agree with that assessment, but I think when we're talking about nature, uh, we can focus so much on just the, you know, is somebody straight or are they not straight? And I think looking more holistically at it looks at what is God's entire intention. Like it is not God's Mm -hmm. intention for me to lust after women that are not my wife. That's unnatural (laughs) according to God's design. So my follow-up question to this for you would be like, I'm sure it's distressing for gay Christians or for a gay person who's maybe new to Christianity or like dabbling into it, like dipping their feet into the waters of it. It might be distressing for them to hear that something that they see their sexual orientation as one of their core identities is unnatural. That's a hard mm-hmm. thing to hear about yourself. How do you help balance the truth and the love aspects of communicating the theological position here? Yeah, so if it, when it feels like we only make this claim in church about same-sex sexual orientation, then, then, it, then, it, then it feels unfair or it feels like targeting or it feels harsh. But if our churches were teaching, yeah, that everyone's sexuality is broken and there's plenty that is broken about the desires for for people of the opposite sex you know and so yeah certainly people who are married are capable of lusting after people who they're not married to i I would also say i think people who are married are capable of lusting after their spouse uh what does that look like break break that down so i mean i uh, one way to understand lust is whenever we objectify someone to consume or use them in selfish ways Mm, yeah and mm. uh and you know there there's i mean that's obvious if if it's in the context if there's some kind of like physical or emotional or sexual abuse happening between spouses but i think there's even ways that that i know at least my married friends have talked to me about ways that they know sometimes when they are not doing well they look at their wife in the same way that they would look at a woman in pornography they want to mm. use them to feel better yeah wow that's just yeah, as I- sinful I, I just talked to a guy recently that opened up about that. So that yeah. that's a real thing. Yeah. And, and there can be milder forms of that, you know. But there's also tons of broken things about us that aren't sexual, right? I mean, uh, I, yeah. for me, when, I, when people ask, you know, people maybe will make a comparison between same-sex attractions and alcoholism. And I'll push back and I'll say, I don't think that's a helpful analogy for a variety of reasons. And they'll say, well, what is a helpful analogy? And I <laughs> said, well, I think it's best to compare it to genetic psoriasis or mm. being born blind or being born deaf. Yeah. It's a physical brokenness that is not the way we're supposed to be that God rarely heals that makes our life more difficult and tempts us to soothe ourselves based on our own designs and based on our own wisdom and disobey God. And yet God has wisdom for us for best ways to steward that enduring brokenness. And he promises us that our redeemed bodies will be perfect and wow. the, these brokennesses will not persist. Yeah, that's it it's it's interesting to hear you use that kind of terminology because I I see the truth in it. I feel like when I hear that terminology employed, the people I normally hear it saying it are like the most kind of crusty conservative political commentator <laughs> And it's, it's coming in a very like aggressive way. And I hear you saying sure. it in a gentle way, but I'm sure for some people it still stings because I mean, what kind of my, the first place that my brain went to when you said what you said is, is almost like, are we taking this as far as like the terminology of mental illness, you know, of like, sure. this is something 
that is not normal and we're, we're owning that, um, yeah. you know, are, are, would you take it that far? And, and, and how do you, when you disciple, cause a big part of what you do and your audience I've seen on social media is people that are wrestling through this, not just church leaders who yeah. want to know how to do better, but people that are struggling with their same sex attraction. So when, when, when you say something like that and somebody's like, Hey, that's really hurtful. Like that, that mm-hmm. makes me feel devalued as a person. Like how, how do you respond? And I'm asking that question really intentionally because there's right. a lot of pastors and leaders listening who want to be able to speak truth about this stuff. But they also, many of them, they, they really do care about like, how do I do this sensitively so that people don't write off me and my church and Jesus and leave wounded, you know? Yeah. Because there's been so much harsh rhetoric in the past that didn't have any of the love behind the truth, you know? So how how would you uh, go there? Yeah. So, I mean, I definitely, definitely want to clarify. I don't think it's a mental illness in that way. I don't think it would be helpful for, you know, the psychological community to define it as a mental illness. I don't think there are treatments to make a person less gay. I wonder if what's at the core of this is, so even people who are not believers, like we know the world is not the way it's supposed to, they know the world is not the way it's supposed to be. Very true. They know that people are not supposed to be blind. Mm. They know that people are not supposed to be deaf. And, and maybe we'll focus on those two because it, it doesn't have some of the baggage as some other things do. Now, there are increasingly movements to try to kind of advocate for this idea that actually just being blind, being deaf is just a natural variation in, in biology, in nature. And they're not mutations. They're not mistakes. They are, they are equally as kind of, you know, biologically fit as mm. being able to see and being able to hear. I think what we're attempting to do there is, is, is some people in our world just wanting to really resist accepting that the world is off. Mm. Because then that requires us to come up with an explanation for, for, for there to be a way things ought to be and that something is off. That would mean that there's some standard. There's some source of, of, of reality. There's yeah. some ultimate truth. There's some uh, reason that we can claim things are not right and they should be made right. There should mm-hmm. be justice, right? And that requires a God philosophically, right? So, we're sh- so they're trying to avoid like kind of the things that set you up for philosophically needing a God. But I think we kind of know that stuff's doublespeak, you know? Yeah. And, and mm-hmm. in, re- in, ma- in many ways, I think ultimately cruel to people who are deaf and blind. Yeah. Who they have maybe I've found some ways to find some community and belonging among those who have a similar who are similarly deaf or blind and because they have some shared experiences there's some special kind of community and belonging they find in those spaces but at the end of the day and they wouldn't trade away those relationships they've made for it you know but but they don't wish that they were blind or deaf and and so i don't know i think if our churches became places where we talked more about the reality of all of us being broken that mm. none of us are the way that god meant for us to be and that for and then all of us have at least one, if not multiple things that will continue to be broken until yeah. we die. And God, even if we asked, will choose not to heal them. Right. And then we have a theology of explaining then why, how could a good God choose not to heal those things and still be good and kind of answer those problem of evil questions. If we were doing all that well, one, it would benefit everybody in the church because mm. we all are kind of dissatisfied with some of the answers that we maybe overly simplistic answers we've gotten on those questions in church. But then those churches will become places where it wouldn't seem as weird or cruel or strange for us to, to say, oh, and experiencing same sex attraction is yeah. also one of those things. That's a really good point because when the focus is just on one particular sin and emphasizing it, and this this is, I don't know if this has been your experience, but I think it might be from what I've heard of your story. But when I talk to a lot of people my age who either are like peers of mine, friends who came out of the closet and ended up being gay and leaving the church, and I keep in touch with some of these friends and what I hear them saying over and over again, and this is, you know, multiple friends, is... When I was in the church, it never felt like when the church talked about gay people that they were talking to me. Mm. It felt like they were talking to a congregation they assumed were all straight. And when they talked about gay people, it was those people out there, those Mm. sinners out there. And look at what they're doing and look at how they're bringing down society and all that stuff. So for gay people sitting in those congregations closeted, there was never any hope presented of, you know, when, when, when they talk about straight people's 
pornography or adultery or divorce or any of this stuff, it was always presented as like, hey, but there's hope, there's redemption. Because the assumption was mm-hmm. there's people in the room that are struggling with that. But because the assumption was there's not anybody in this room that could possibly be struggling with that, we're just going to talk against the culture and and not recognize there there are people struggling right here that need the gospel and need a message about how they, yes, they're broken, but they can be redeemed. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's based on an assumption for a number of decades that if people were gay, it's because they chose to be gay. Hmm. And so, well, obviously no one would be in this congregation and be gay because they, if they were in this congregation genuinely, then they would choose not to be gay and they would no longer be gay. And so therefore the only gay people are people outside of this room. That's not a historic teaching of the church. That is a a strange kind of theological conclusion that started popping up in the 70s and 80s and got popularized <laughs> in reaction to the AIDS crisis. But that is not that's not how the, that's not how even Billy Graham and Francis Schaeffer and like and prominent theologians in the middle 20th century thought about homosexuality and same sex attractions. So mm. it's a strange kind of theological idea of the pray the gay away movement and of the ex-gay movement that people choose their sexual orientation. Thankfully, most most churches, most kind of credible denominations are moving on from that those those assumptions and recognizing that people neither choose their sexual orientations nor are people born genetically determined to develop a particular sexual orientation where neither born gay nor choose to be gay but uh, but yeah i think that was maybe the source of that for for a, and, and that was maybe true that was true of the churches that i grew up in and true of the churches that my peers grew up in was they kind of assumed that people chose to be gay so if you're in this room it's you've cho- you've chosen not to be gay mm. Peter, I think anybody who's listened this far is probably really blessed with what you're saying, really encouraged by what you're saying. When you try to do what you do with Equip, do you feel like a lot of times you feel like there's walls up that you have to break down with people where maybe they assume certain things about your ministry at first glance? You know, they they might assume like, oh, you know, because there is the word gay, <laughs> just simply the word gay mm-hmm. in this sentence, that they're, they're assuming that you take a progressive Christian stance or a theologically liberal stance. Do, do you find that you have to deal with those barriers? Yeah. And I think I, I get it kind of from, from both directions. And some of it is, I guess, is reasonable, right? Like I, it would not be reasonable for me to assume or for me to demand that every person who stumbles upon anything that I've written or anything about me on the internet would then spend 30 minutes reading a an explainer article <laughs> on my website that clarifies each of the tricky things that they might misunderstand, right? Right. That would not be reasonable for me to demand. And so people yeah. are going to take a quick glance and based on all of their previous life experiences and what these words and what these things have meant that people have used in the past are going to make a quick judgment, a quick assessment of who I might be. And that's just kind of how humans work. Like it's it's efficient, even if at times inaccurate. So yeah, I get a lot of that from both directions. And I think that's why part of my job is to be patient with that yeah. and, and to take the time to, to clarify. And I think that's because I represent this kind of middle way between two extremes of of the revisionist kind of sexual ethics on one extreme and the ex-gay theology on the other extreme. And I don't know if this, what I would call compassionate orthodoxy in the middle, has mm. been built out enough mm. to where the average Christian knows what the what the platform is, you know, what the talking points are for someone who yeah. finds them, themselves in that middle space. They know what the talking points are for a revision of sexual ethic. They know what the talking points are for ex-gay theology. But the stuff in the middle, it's 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 not as built out. It's not as crystallized. Yeah. It's not as kind of uniform and and and, and well marketed, you know. And so yeah, 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 people don't know what they're getting into when they when they interact with me. And so I'm I'm but I'm willing and eager to to clarify. 
Well, I'm glad that you have thick skin. I can tell <laughs> that you you've developed that, and and I, I love what you're saying about that that humble orthodoxy in the middle. I, I think that's beautiful, and that's a huge value that we at this show try to carry is that, you know that that humble orthodoxy. Yeah, thank you. That concludes part one of our conversation with Peter Valk. And as we wind down from the episode, let's do a little recap. What a blessing to hear from Peter. I mean, what an incredible guy. I love his heart. I love his story. I love his faithfulness to Jesus and to theological orthodoxy and to being willing to walk a really hard road of obedience and yet to do it in a way that is encouraging and beneficial and a blessing to others that are struggling with the same things that he's struggling with and also to those of us who are struggling just with sexual brokenness in general. You know, as a father now to my son Jack, I think about what kind of world do I want my son to live in? The world is getting more and more broken day by day and now the world is embracing its sexual brokenness and glorifying it. And, and so much of that brokenness has been around for a long time. When I was growing up, it was more hidden behind the scenes. And that goes for every kind of sexual brokenness, whether it be adultery or divorce or sex outside of marriage or any sexuality that doesn't line up with the sexual ethic that Jesus gives us in scripture. These days, sexual brokenness is much more out in the open, especially in regards to the context of the episode that we talked about today. And so I think about two reactions to that brokenness. On the left side of culture, you have an attempt to deny that the brokenness even exists and a desire to baptize the brokenness and call it good and holy and righteous, which we know leads to destruction. And then on the right side, you've got a fear and a loathing of that brokenness, a hatred for those who struggle with it because of fear of what that brokenness will do to our society and the hyperfixation on one particular aspect of brokenness in a way that actually causes them to turn a blind eye to their own sexual brokenness. And I don't see these two sides getting less extreme in how they operate. I see it only increasing. And so when I think of my son and I think of what kind of man do I want him to be, I want him to grow up to be the kind of man who ultimately lays all of his brokenness down at the feet of Jesus and submits himself to walking in obedience while knowing deep in his bones that he is unconditionally loved, unconditionally forgiven, unconditionally embraced and welcomed to the table of Jesus. I want him to have an understanding of the brokenness on all sides of the equation, and I want him to have an understanding of his own brokenness. And then I want him to have a compassion, both for those who struggle with brokenness and for himself, because as much as he is this perfect little angel toddler baby at the moment, he is human. And I know just like me and every other human before him, he will struggle. And because of this, I'm so thankful for guys like Peter who have this moral courage and integrity to say, hey, this is a problem and we need to talk about it. But then also the compassion to say, let's talk about it in a way that builds a bridge instead of a wall. Because the reality is what Peter believes the historic Christian sexual ethic is alienating. That's just the reality. The reality is no matter how compassionate he or I present that message, it's still going to make a large majority of people in today's culture who hear that message, it's going to make them upset and offended and deeply disturbed because it is disturbing to be called out on your sin. It's disturbing to hear that part of your human condition is broken. And so my thought is because the message of that truth is already alienating, why wouldn't we bend over backwards to present it in the most compassionate way possible? Not compromising the truth, but not being skimpy on the grace. These days, there's a growing movement that fears grace because it worries that grace will open up the door to compromise. But my thought is, if we are just abundantly clear about what we mean and what we don't mean, then we can let the grace flow like rivers of water. We can lead with compassion as Christ himself was compassionate on us when he went to the cross. So this is another episode that we decided to break up into two. The reason I'm doing that is because I realize 
that an episode that is an hour and 30 minutes long, some of you guys probably aren't going to listen to the whole thing. I know that because sometimes that's how I am with podcasts that I love. And I just think this content is too good for you to miss. So we're going to break up the flow, give you some breathing room to pray through the things you heard on this episode. And then on the next one, we're going to jump right back in and get into some of the pushback. When I told several of my pastor friends that I was going to be interviewing Peter, because Peter isn't very well known in the Calvary Chapel tribes, some people were understandably concerned and had some pushback. Even just taking a look at Peter's social media account caused some to have some questions and some concerns. And now that Peter has taken the time to establish where he's coming from and who he is and what he's about and what he's not about, I think the next episode will be a great place for him to build off that foundation and dive into responding to some of that pushback. I just have to say in advance, I think you guys are really going to love what Peter has to say. Honestly, out of everyone I've ever interviewed, I found him to be one of the most balanced guys of all time. I feel like the way he navigated the pushback just blew my mind, surprised me, shocked me, and encouraged me. It made me want to be better at how I handle pushback in my own life. So hopefully that's a good enough commercial for the next episode. I hope you guys will keep your eyes peeled for it. Don't miss it. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Good Lion Podcast. We hope this episode has encouraged and challenged you to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Our goal and heart for the show is to always be pointing you to the God who is not safe, but who is very, very good. If you enjoyed this show, we would so appreciate it if you would leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice. The more reviews we get, the more people are able to find the show. So please leave a review. It helps so much. The Good Line Podcast is produced by myself, Aaron Salvato, and my co-host, Brian Higgins. And we are a part of CGN Media. For more great content, visit cgnmedia.org. For more from Good Lion Ministries, you can also find tons of podcasts, resources, courses, and more at our ministries website, goodlion.org. If you'd like to support the work that we do, please visit goodlion.org support. With your help, we can continue pointing people to Jesus and providing thought-provoking resources for the church. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope this episode helped you on your journey of following Jesus. And until next time, keep your eyes fixed on him.